Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the spring season of the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's book segment, we talked to Nadia Haj, Wellesley College, uh, about her new book, Networked Refugees, Palestinian Reciprocity and Remittances in the Digital Age. We also talked to David Steinberg of Johns Hopkins Sice about his article, How Voters Respond to Currency Crises, Evidence from Turkey. And then finally, we check in with Thomas Sech of the University of California at Santa Cruz about the fortunes of Algeria's Hirak movement. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Nadia Haj of Wellesley College, author of the new book, Networked Refugees, Palestinian Reciprocity and Remittances in the Digital Age, which was just published by the University of California Press. Nadia, thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. It's a real pleasure to be here. So let's talk about this book. Uh, um, What is Networked Refugees all about? So this book explores a central research question. Generally, I consider the question, how do refugees and specifically Palestinians solve collective dilemmas and meet their basic needs amid what I would consider to be a broken world order that exhibits a casual disregard for their lives and their well-being? And I seek to answer this question um, by looking at how Palestinian communities inside refugee camps and their broader network, their Ahl and Hamulli, their family and village kinship networks that are strewn all across the world in the wider diaspora, how they connect to one another um, and engage in, in reciprocal behavior. That is that they exchange um, mutually um, favors and services that should in turn spark remittance flows that help them meet their needs when host states and aid agencies either aren't able or willing to help them. And the key place or the site where this is happening is in digital spaces right now. So on platforms that are really not very popular in the news right now, but platforms like Facebook or WhatsApp serve as a a site where Palestinian communities can um, project, so to speak, their family and village networks or map them onto digital spaces, uh, communicate needs, and then um, get those remittances flowing. So, so it's really interesting. I mean, this has obviously been going on for a long time since the Palestinian dispossession of 1948. So tell us a little bit about them, these communities, and how they traditionally related to the diaspora in terms of remittances and connections. So Palestinians have uh, deep resilience and strategies for survival. And prior to the digital age, when we might call it the analog eras, um, Palestinians were um, a community that initially sent out scouts, um, as the migration literature might refer to them. But scouts were often young men that were, you know, the entire community got behind those young men, um, helped uh, afford them their passage or journey to the West or sometimes to Gulf countries in the Middle East, where they would earn their wages and then traditionally send those wages back home to the home, meaning the camps in this case. Um, And this flow of money um, occurred in a lot of different ways. Um, A lot um, happened, you know, informally with people carrying suitcases of money, um, literally from the Gulf to back into the um, refugee camps. Um, And then we can see as technology changes, the ways in which the community Um, is communicating their needs and then sending those back keeps up with the times. But one thing that stays, I shouldn't say the same, but constant is that the networks of um, reciprocity of who is expected to give and who could take and then once taking that they would pay it forward was not occurring along um, political party lines. So it wasn't that Palestinian political parties were facilitating these flows from the DIA into the camps, um, acting as middlemen. Rather, the networks of family and village um, were the primary means by which the flows of money occurred. And I think this is really key because when you consider the literature on 
cooperation more generally, which comes from a lot of different fields, you know, evolutionary biology to economics to political science as well. You can think of Axelrod's book and thinking about what makes people engage in cooperative behavior. One of the key aspects was enforcement of norms and ideas so that when someone is asking for assistance, money, the expectation is that people will give, and if they don't, um, that there's going to be some kind of mechanism to incentivize giving. Um, by keeping the network within the family and village, you have a lot of dynamic um, ideas of honor and shame that can be projected into digital spaces and real and have spillover effects into the real world um, that can be kind of drawn upon. So the internet is no longer this, I don't know, a lot of Americans might think of it as a low cost kind of anonymous space where people engage one another. Um, and that's why you see a lot of bad behavior online. Mm -hmm. In contrast, for Palestinian families and villages that are interacting in, in digital spaces, it's a high context space where people know who you are, who you're re related to, and what you do. Um, and so the norms of shame and honor that um, would govern you in the real world are still constraining you in digital spaces, um, which makes people uh, more likely to give when people are putting out pleas. Um, so that's kind of how traditionally it happened in analog spaces and how it's, I think, continued to occur even in digital spaces. One of the things which is interesting about how you frame this is that the problems facing these refugee communities have changed over time as, you know, the as generations go on and, uh, you know, maybe people living in the West or in the Gulf drift away or they might be expected mm -hmm. to drift away. And at the same time, international support uh, from UNRWA and others um, has kind of become sporadic and, and less effective. And so, in a sense, the conditions of these communities are changing along with the technology. So how do they adapt to that then? What do they do in order to overcome these problems? Right. So, I mean, I think that you're bringing up an important point that what, um, that because Palestinians have been living in refugee camps for more than 70 years, you know, in these perpetual states of um, warehousing, as the literature would refer to it, where, you know, you're kept in a prolonged state of enforced idleness in some ways and inability to have um, free mobility to gain access to host country, you know, political, economic, and social networks. Especially, um, especially in Lebanon, where your work Especially was. in Lebanon, where a lot of my research, the majority of my research occurs. Um, because of that, you have a community that's largely isolated, though it does mix with the Lebanese community, the camps are in some, to some degree islands unto themselves. Um, traditional networks of family and village uh, are very strong in the camps. Who you live next to in the camps in 2021 are likely the same neighbors that your great grandfather lived next to in Palestine prior to 1948. There's some really great work by Rosemary Sayer and others that even references how street names within the refugee camps replicate the street names and neighborhood names that existed in Palestine prior to their arrival in the refugee camps. So you have these um, really strong um, connections inside the refugee camps that persist. Uh, at the same time, the world has changed a lot around them. In 2018, um, President Trump um, completely defunded UNRWA, a huge blow to um, communities that relied on those services, especially in Lebanon, where they're not allowed to um, enter Lebanese schools or own property formally in Lebanon proper. And so because of that, um, you have increasing sense of desperation. Like one of the most common themes or pleas that I've heard in recent years is Min'aish Bidun like we live without hope. Um, and so this, it is a huge challenge. Um, how are we gonna meet ever widening needs that are not gonna be met by other people at the same time that the political um, climate has shifted as well for Palestinians. 
there was a time where Fatah and the PLO and maybe even Hamas would have supported Palestinians in some ways through some kind of welfare program. But increasingly, since the end of the Oslo Accords, and now as the political dynamic has changed, and this is more of your research, Mark, um, even more so, the camps outside of the occupied territories in Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria have kind of been kicked to the curb, um, increasingly left on their own. So the family and village kind of has to adapt. There's no one else to help. And right. this is where um, digital spaces are so powerful because it allows for the community in real time to update their needs. And just as in the United States, when you know, you'll see pleas out on Twitter or different places like I'm, you know, I'm unemployed. I need, I need help. I'm, I need a surgery. I need some support to make rent this month or something like that. And it becomes a sort of mutual aid network. This is what Palestinian spaces have become like. Um, but notions of honor and shame, and this is where I think it's really careful to the, important to the listener to understand what I'm saying. In no way am I Am I playing to some like Orientalist fantasy that Palestinians are like, you know, tr tribal pre-modern kind of people that are relying on family and village because they can't adapt to modern politics? That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that the decision to use the family and village network and to engage in reci reciprocal behaviors with one another is a common strategy and adaptive strategy of the poor. If you look at the myriad of sociological literature on Black communities historically in the United States, that were purposely excluded from economic banking structures and political support systems, they too, I, I heavily relied on this book, um, All Our Kin by Carol Stack, mm -hmm. where she talks a lot about, it's from the 70s, she talks a lot about the role of um, reciprocity and giving of gifts and taking as a way for the community to survive. It's an adaptive, resilient strategy of the poor and marginalized. So Palestinians in the camp are doing this in digital spaces. One of the ways that they do this is by sharing images, stories that um, have meaning to the community. So initially, I was really puzzled by like a lot of the religious um, slogans and like putting up of one might say like scripture put on verses. And I was like, oh, maybe this is really a book about like the power of religion in digital spaces. Right. And um, it, I created actually a word cloud and you can check out the word cloud in the book um, or online. It's open access and free. When you look at the images in the of the word cloud, a lot of really religious words stand out. Those are the most frequent ones that are popping up. And it was only when I started doing interviews with the diaspora that it, it made that it that the message that was being sent made sense. It wasn't like these were just tropes like hang in there, like the cat poster that some of us think about or like, you know, overly positive slogans like we're in a refugee camp, let's make it another day. It wasn't that. They post a lot of these um, religious verses and then they would include an image of, for example, a gravestone that was broken in a cemetery that was littered um, or an old person like sitting in um, a wheelchair looking kind of neglected. So like a really sad picture with this Quranic verse like, you know, who amongst you doesn't take care of your neighbor? Um, and when I was speaking with someone in the diaspora, the the young man said, um, if you don't mind me reading you a little bit of a quote yeah, from an interview, he said, he said, oh, man, every time X a person posts his religious verses and these horrible pictures of my family's broken gravestones or old people languishing in wheelchairs, along with some religious verse. I really know it's directed at me. Sometimes I feel like he knows what I'm doing on the other side of the screen because I would be shopping online at Amazon for some random thing I didn't need. And then I'd quickly empty my digital cart and, and wire over two or uh, one or 200 bucks via Western Union or send some money in the suitcase of a relative heading to the Middle East to give to people in the camp. 
I have to give money to feel okay about myself and my family. I haven't ever lived in the camps. That's extraordinary. This is a person that had never lived in the camp. He's actually third generation from mm -hmm. living in the camp. But he said, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to curse here for a moment. You get treated like shit if you do not give when the community needs it. And it's a good reminder to not be a selfish jerk. I know that what I'm doing is right in my heart. So these religious messages are older stories that would be shared in a digital space, a, a recording of a poet um, sharing a poem. All these stories had a real deep meaning and were playing on old ideas of honor and shame and melding them with these new technologies to get people to do the right thing. Um, and I'm doing air quotes, right thing, which is to support the community when it asks for help. Um, and you know, what's fascinating is those norms are so powerful that even people second or third generation into the diaspora know what they're supposed to be doing. So one of the things which is interesting in these stories that you're telling um, about this is this, it's almost a digital ethnography um, mm -hmm. that, that you did and, and the immersion in these spaces. Tell us a little bit about like what you did, how you accessed these and um, mm -hmm. you know, how you were able to kind of come to these conclusions. Yeah, I joke that I kind of used my MacGyver toolkit of um, methods um, and skills. So, you know, if you're not a child or a person of the 80s and 90s and don't know what I mean when I'm referring to my MacGyver like Swiss Army knife, you're missing out. But, you know, MacGyver would have his Swiss Army knife and with all these different tools could solve any problem in the world um, and kind of um, to to study this subject. Um, it was a challenge because my site of, of research were multiple. Um, there was a digital space where refugees and people in the diaspora are communicating. There's the refugee camp in the Middle East, and then there's the diaspora community that's living all over the world. I used a multitude of tools. First of all, the tools that I was most comfortable with as a qualitative researcher were that I um, used interviewing skills, um, open-ended, longer form interviews with people inside the refugee camps and with people in the diaspora. I devised a survey that I sent out to hundreds of people, not only uh, in the in the diaspora. So this includes parts of Europe, parts of the Gulf, and as well as the United States um, that were sent this um, survey. Um, next, I also used some basic descriptive statistics um, from Arab Barometer that gave me a, an idea of digital uh, media usage in the region. And then next, the new tool, I guess, that I used was um, something called data scraping, which was that I used um, a tool kind of in a, in a creative way. It's called Selenium WebDriver. And it's a tool that actually web developers will often use to click to make sure that all the buttons on a website work, that when you, you know, try a button on a website or click on a button on a website, that it actually takes you to what it's supposed to. Um, but it's like a little robot um, that will check any site and collect data. Um, and so I, I asked Selenium WebDriver, I used Selenium WebDriver to click through these Palestinian pages in Facebook where pre-1948 villages have their own sites. Um, and so it would click through these sites and collect, um, download basically all the demographic data of the people using those mm -hmm. sites. Um, Facebook didn't love me use mining their data, but I was, uh, so I kept getting kicked off, but you, I was allowed to do it. Um, public and, data. These are public pages. Yeah, this is all public, um, you know, data. And in addition, I I connected that with Google Maps API, which allows you to geolocate where these people actually are that are engaging on this website. And when you meld those two together, you can create a map that not only tells you the intensity at which people are engaging on these sites, but where they are. Um, and the types of, um, and then to kind of do almost like a content analysis of what the posts, the subjects were actually about. I think the important question you asked that is not maybe something often talked about is, 
it is public data. We can access it. The deeper question is, should we as researchers, the mm -hmm. ethical question? And I took this very seriously because even with the IRB updates um, that happened in the last couple of years, when you see the little world in the corner of any Facebook post, that indicates that it's public. It's not actually private and you are allowed to collect that without mm -hmm. consent. I didn't even though I knew I could do that, I didn't want to. So um, every um, Palestinian Facebook page that I accessed, there was like a group manager that hosts, that's kind of the, not an actual gatekeeper, so to speak, but the one that created the page. Um, I asked their permission if I could, you know, access the page. And then beyond that, any posts that I actually scraped and looked at and then included in my write-up, I asked permission of all the people in the posts. Um, and part of the legal aspect is because I um, use the images of some people, obituaries are often posted in these pages. Um, because these people were deceased, I had to get the consent of the family. And, you know, UC Press requires release forms then, legal release forms. So it was a little bit of a, a schlep to get all the permissions, but I think it's important to do so. Um, if you're wondering about where these pages are, how to find these pages, they're kind of in plain sight. If you go to palestinerememberednet there is a... a an accessible spreadsheet that lists every pre-1948 Palestinian village and all their digital presence pages. Yeah, so that's amazing. they have a Facebook page or whatever, you just click on it and it takes you to their page. One of the things which was interesting, um, just the very surface level is when you found, I mean, these people spend as much time on Facebook or, you know, kind of online as, as I do. Um, just the volume of posting and commenting seems to be quite high, a lot of engagement. That's right. And one thing that was so important to me was that, you know, I think that the internet and using digital tools as a place of meaningful community building and solving collective problems is kind of poo-pooed or considered really naive from um, Westerners. You can only just think about how Americans experienced the last election and all the misinformation around the pandemic. Like most of us are quite pessimistic and jaded about these digital spaces. One of the things that I want to encourage people to think about is how these tools have much more powerful meaning to people that are forcibly separated from one another. In no way am I imagining the internet or these platforms to be some disembodied utopia, right? Rather, I'm thinking of it as a deeply embodied utopia where people really do know everyone in that community. They're posting who their parents and grandparents are, who did what, who has recently died or been sick in their family. And one thing that was important to me was that this wasn't just a study of people that were like angelic and altruistic, right? That of course people are gonna give that already care, right? One of the fascinating things as you note is that in doing this scraping and this analysis, I found that whether you lived in Australia or you lived inside the camp or in the Gulf, regardless of your distance from the camp and even time away since you, or if you'd ever lived in the camp, you were just as likely to engage on your family village Facebook page as anyone close by. Um, those, whether you were in Australia or in the camp, you were just as likely to post and engage on this page, which speaks to the strength of that and how important it is from the community. And the kind of posts are not just like superficial things. A lot of them were obituaries, funerals, and these were important sites of um, memory and community making in digital spaces. But what's fascinating is that it's not just that people, when they send remittances, that it's individual interactions. That is, I'm sick, I need money, and the money comes to you. Um, one thing that I discovered was that, and this is building off of Purna Singh's research, um, and looking at subnational welfare in India, um, where she finds that subnational identities like village, um, for me in this case, it's family and village, whereas you might think it could devolve into some kind of tribalism and only people from one family serving their own family and getting money. What I found in the camps was that 
um, after there were a host of deaths, which have been increasing in the camps because of COVID-19 as well, mm -hmm. the um, huge collective dilemma was how to um, wash and enshroud a body with dignity. Um, and um, there was literally no space in the camp where people could wash the dead and enshroud them. And people were often doing it in their own homes where, you know, 10 other people were living within this room as well. So through um, crowdfunding and remittances, the community was able to raise enough money to purchase a space within the refugee camp and also pay for a shroud collective. That is that anyone that died, whether you were from the family that gave the most money <laughs> or the family that gave no money, but regardless of where you were from in your status within the camps, you could access this space for, bear, for washing the body and access a shroud. Um, and I think that's a really powerful example of the way in which um, these remittances are not just solving individual needs, but collective communal needs and goods and can, you know, speak to the power of this type of engagement in community building mm -hmm. and honestly public good provision, which is what we often think states are going to do. But here you have an example of how communities can do that. There was one interesting anecdote uh, that, that you had in here where uh, there was a, a guy who just did this stuff, didn't want credit for it. He just like gave it and he ended up getting shamed by the community because he wasn't posting about it on Facebook. Speak right. to, to these enforcement issues and what kinds of communities these digital spaces are creating. That's right. There's an idea, you know, there's an expectation of how you're going to perform um, the, the reciprocal act. It's not enough to just do it, but you also have to point out that you did it online. Right, right. Um, um, and one of the potential um, concerns that I've had with even undertaking this research from a broader kind of moral perspective is by talking about these communities and how vibrant they are, am I actually um, drawing light to them in a pen maybe increasing surveillance of them. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that uh, I've, I do believe all of us are being surveilled online. And so let's not be naive about that. The deeper concern I have, which relates to this anecdote that you bring up is less about who's watching you while you're using the device or engaging online and more about the way in which people are changed by their interactions online. And part of the book considers social remittances and the sharing and flow of ideas um, that might actually challenge the family and village networks and the codes of honor and shame, which are admittedly heteronormative and patriarchal in the Palestinian sense. And these digital spaces are introducing a lot of different ideas about marriage, about love, about sexuality, and allowing for conversations that could have never been in the real right. world. And so with this introduction of the flow of new ideas that's come along with the flow of money, um, you're having an opportunity for the community to redefine itself and to develop new gatekeepers um, because often the communal gatekeepers in the real world, <laughs> you know, are often older men right. um, that are quite old and may not actually have a presence if they're 80 online. Whereas the gatekeepers online are younger people that you know, control the tool, that harness the tool, that set up the pages and monitor them. Um, what they allow hap to happen and be talked about might be different than what the community would normally be okay with. Um, and this is where I think the seeds for both um, interesting change, but also for communal degradation can occur as well. Well, this is so interesting. Uh, we've been speaking to Nadia Hajj about her new book, Networked Refugees, um, just out with the University of California. Nadia, thank you so much for joining, joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I really appreciate it. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's article segment, we're joined by David Steinberg of the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University, um, author of a new article, How Voters Respond to Currency Crises, Evidence from Turkey, an interesting article at a time when Turkey is in the midst of one of its most intense currency crises in modern history. Uh, David, thanks for joining us. 
Thanks so much, Mark. Really uh, excited to get a chance to talk to you about this piece and uh, Turkey. Well, let's let's uh, get into it then. So tell us a little bit about this and um, what you were trying to do when you started studying the currency crisis in Turkey and this amazing natural experiment that you got. Thanks. Yeah. So uh, I was, you know, I, I've been interested in currency crises for a long time. I'd previously looked uh, at Argentina, uh, for example, uh, Mexico, and then, you know, started to pay attention to what was happening in Turkey in 2018 and started speaking with Turkish colleagues of mine and said, you know, it'd be really interesting to do uh, a public opinion study there. And, and actually, the initial goal wasn't necessarily to look at the effect of a currency depreciation, which is what we did, because you know, believe it or not, couldn't exactly forecast what was going to happen to the exchange rate. Um, so we included some questions on this uh, survey just after the 2018 election, asking people's public, you know, for their attitudes about uh, exchange rates and, and other issues, and then decided that actually the most interesting thing that happened in this time wasn't necessarily people's reported opinions about this, but trying to uh, track how the exchange rate shock in this period impacted their sort of broader political attitudes. And so uh, in the end, uh, I was certainly interested in the exchange rate stuff, but, but the original motivation for the survey wasn't exactly directly, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't necessarily envision the article uh, that, that got written before the survey was, uh, you know, pr right. prior to me actually designing the survey, but I, I knew I was sort of fishing around to what seemed like a really interesting uh, case at the time. And, and then you had this, uh, just by sheer, sheer happenstance, you got a major currency crisis, which erupted halfway through the study. Right, exactly. So, um, right. So, so what? So what the what this piece of research is, is drawing on is the fact that you know a couple days, you know, sort of midway through the the survey period, the the lira first crashes about three percent. Two days later, another three percent. And for those who've been following Turkish politics lately, maybe a three percent depreciation doesn't sound that big anymore, but uh, by the standards of July 2018, this is, this is a major acceleration uh, in the rate of depreciation. It was you know, the, the largest single day depreciation in about two years. And then when you combine the sort of three, you know, that the sort of two days of depreciation together, this is the biggest kind of currency drop in a short period that they've had in something like eight years in Turkey. So, you know, even, even though the currency had been weakening for you know a couple of months. This, this is really an acceleration. You know, and I sort of view this as you know kind of the the beginning of the intensification of, of what has been bigger currency problems for Turkey in the last three or so years. So, so give us like just the main headlines of of the key findings that uh, you got from from this experiment or from this from the survey. Right. So the the sort of First single, you know, headline finding is that um, currency crashes reduce support for the ruling uh, party in Turkey at the time, and, and so the way I sort of got at that finding is just by trying to compare uh, approval or vote intentions among people who were interviewed on days where the currency was relatively strong with otherwise similar subjects who were interviewed on days after the currency crash, and so. You know, based on that, I find that the about six and a half percent depreciation that happened in that time window reduced approval by about a point and a half on an 11 point scale. And it reduced uh, the probability that someone would vote for the government by about almost seven percentage points. Um, so that, that's kind of the main finding. And then, you know, in the article, I also dig a little bit deeper to look at the, how the magnitude of that effect varies across individuals and across regions of Turkey as well. And, that, and one of the interesting things uh, that, it, that in the findings was in terms of their exposure to the international economy. Right. So, exactly. So, it, you know, places like Istanbul that are more sort of oriented towards international commerce uh, and, you know, cl you know have, have more international ties, the effect is stronger than more sort of remote areas with less ties to the international economy. And, and it sort of makes sense because. The, the re, you know, the reason why a currency crisis is problematic here, right? When when the when it takes more lira to buy a dollar, imports are more expensive, so prices go up more. So in parts of the country where you know, you're more reliant on imports, inflation or, or prices in general are going up more, and so people's uh, the economic situation in those more trade dependent parts of the country are more tied to the currency. So you would expect, you know, again, larger economic consequences in more trade dependent portions of the country and therefore a larger uh, political backlash in those regions as well. 
So let's tie this back into uh, the literature then. Why is this surprising? Why, why would we not expect to see that kind of political backlash? So, I mean, in a way it's, it's you know, if you study economic voting in a way, this isn't shocking, right? I mean, we would think, you know, bad economic outcomes reduce incumbent approval. On the other hand, you know, a lot of people think, uh, you know, I, I mean, I've been studying exchange rates for quite a while now and, and a reaction I often get is, care, you know, people don't understand exchange rates, people don't understand international finance or international monetary issues. It's so confusing, it's so technical, it's so complex. Um, so, you know, a, a large, you know, part of the motivation for this paper for me and, and, and the sort of larger research program that it draws on is to try and, you know, dispel this myth that ordinary people don't understand international finance. Now, that's probably true in the United States because people don't have to care about international money and finance because the dollar is the world's currency. So fluctuations in the dollar and other currencies just don't matter to people. But in places like, you know, Turkey, Argentina, Lebanon, Brazil, Russia, South Africa, et cetera, et cetera, uh, where, you know, the, the exchange rate has a much larger impact because, you know, for various reasons, because, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, prices are, are much more heavily tied to the exchange rate and people's debts are tied to the exchange rate debt values because they have to repay debts in dollars. Uh, you know, in, in these contexts, the exchange rate is much more economically and, and politically significant. And so, uh, you know, I, I guess part, part of the sort of theoretical controversy I'm trying to get at here is, is to show that, you know, this is actually a very economically and politically salient issue in sort of emerging and developing countries uh, among uh, sort of average ordinary citizens. Well, because they can feel it, as you said. They can right, feel exactly, it, uh, exactly, right. And... exactly right. You know, the, the effects, uh, as, I, as I sort of like to describe it, are, are very direct and visible, right? So if the lira falls by, you know, 10%, that basically means right away that your import price, you know, those things you're importing are now 10% more expensive. Uh, and, you know, especially for people, you know, lower income people who have a larger share of their money spent on imports, that's, that's going to be a big, you know, it, think of it as a, a 10% tax on, on, you know, consumption, right? This is a pretty big hit to people's, you know, purchasing power, the, the, the value of their wages. Um, so, you know, this, this is a very direct uh, and noticeable thing. And, and, you know, it's also when you, in, in lots of these countries, right, the first, you know, the first thing you see when you open up the newspaper in, in many cases, right? So it, it is, it's taken on, you know, this sort of political uh, mm -hmm. significance as well. So now let's run this through Turkish politics then. You, you, you found some regional variation um, within the country. Right. Um, right. So, so, so the basic, you know, regional variation there that we find, what I looked at it is regions based on their level of trade dependence, uh, though I've also split this up based on export dependence and import dependence. Um, and so, you know, again, the, the most, you know, at least by, you know, Turkish uh, statistics, it's, it's Istanbul, for example, is the most uh, trade dependent. And so, uh, and actually, if it, one thing I played around with, it's not in the article, is if you just sort of look at what happens within Istanbul over the time period I look at, you see a really dramatic drop, for example, in support for uh, the ruling party within that survey window. So you can see it really close. And, and we have actually more observations in, in Istanbul than anywhere else. You see like in these more, you know, internationally oriented parts of the country like uh, Istanbul, you really see a, a very dramatic drop in, in support for the ruling party in this particular uh, period. Now, this isn't the um, the focus of your article, which is about the 2018 crisis. But you know, we're we're talking about this a few minutes ago. Um, you know, right now Turkey's been going through a really, really extreme uh, currency crisis, and which is fueled by Erdogan's conscious decision to lower interest rates. So, if if you're right about the effects on the ruling party, why would he be doing this? Yeah, it's it's uh, kind of hard to rack my brain around. I mean, so. There could be a few possible things going on that I that I think each each are plausible, right? So, one is, you know, th there could be a strategic political calculation that we're far enough away from elections now that maybe this is a if, if you think the currencies should depreciate, maybe this is a good time to do this now rather than in a run up to an election and and actually work, you know, sort of 
cross-national work on exchange rates and, and research from other countries shows that the, the exchange rate actually follows an electoral cycle often, right? Lowering after an election and then strengthening prior to an election because again, incumbents generally seem to realize that a strong exchange rate is, is a good thing politically. So, you know, that, and, and that gets to your point, right? Why would they do this? Well, maybe part of the story is if ever there's a time to do it now, now wouldn't be that bad. And in fact, you know, to, to go back to maybe the original point, like part, part of the, in a sense, luck about this survey is I did this right after the election of 2018. So maybe, maybe that is why it's sort of the depreciation accelerated then. So, so one possibility you is- You take a maybe, political hit now to get the economic benefits. And right, then, exactly. And, and so- out. Right. And so, you know, in the long term, there are potential benefits, you know, so the initial currency crash is often painful to the extent that you can keep the exchange rate at, at what, you know, economists call a stable and competitive value, right? If it, if it can maintain this competitive value, that can be good for exports in the longer term and help the competitiveness of the Turkish economy. The problem, you know, the problem there, though, is that with inflation running at north of 30 percent, it's going to wipe away those competitive gains. Right. So it's very tough to do that. So I, I'm, I'm that, that's one possible political story. I, I guess another possible story is, you know, Erdogan thinks that the that the the negative effects of the currency are smaller than whatever benefits lower interest rates get mm -hmm. uh, in terms of making it cheaper for businesses to borrow money, right? So there's plenty, you know, lots of you know Turkish small businesses, for example, are, are uh, hurt when interest rates are high, and certainly other households. So his sense, you know, perhaps his calculation is that, that the gains from cheaper credit outweigh any of the downsides of the low exchange rate. Now, I happen to think that's probably not the case. I, I have, I, I'm skeptical that, that, the, that the net benefits of this policy are, are positive politically. But the distribution um, might be. Right, that, that's true. Um, and, and especially, you know, right, that's true. Perhaps, you know, the, the, the key people he's trying to, the key social groups he's trying to please are, are the ones that would uh, stand to benefit there. Um, and, and I guess, you know, a, a related, uh, you know, another consideration might be the sense that uh, er Erdogan might believe that he's able to divert, you know, sort of uh, deflect blame for the currency crisis to, you know, foreign speculators and, and sort of frame this as an economic war, uh, often uses sort of religious type framing in his arguments for low interest rates. So there may be, uh, you know, maybe the down, it's, it's possible that the downsides of this may not be as large uh, as we might otherwise think, because they can be successfully framed as a sort of nationalist uh, mm -hmm. stance against foreigners. Now, again, I, I'm sort of skeptical that that framing is going to be terribly successful. Uh, but the fact that, you know, the ruling party has pretty good control over the media certainly helps, helps them get their message across. So one of the things which is interesting about, about the study is that, as you said in your introduction, that you came to this uh, not from, you know, having only looked at Turkey your entire life, but, um, but having looked at similar types of things in, right. in kind of a cross-national way. Um, so from that cross-national comparative perspective, is there anything about Turkey, whether 2018 or today, that kind of stands out as unusual, or is this just basically what you'd expect from this type of economy going through this type of crisis? Um, I mean, in terms of, I mean, this seems pretty typical. I, you know, it's, uh, you know, I, again, I, I've, I've spent more time studying Argentina and the parallels to what's happening in Argentina today, to what happened in Argentina in 2014, 2015, to what happened in you know these countries in previous times, it looks quite similar, right? So you 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 know the, the typical sort of exchange rate cycle is you know you have the exchange rate fairly stable against say the dollar, but inflation is creeping up at home as it was in Turkey, and then eventually people lose confidence in the currency that it can be sustained, and then the currency crashes, and this creates a severe economic crisis, and also as a result, you know, a sort of political backlash to this. Um, so, it, you know, I certainly would not want to make the case that there's nothing unique about this mm -hmm. and that every crisis is the same, but in the sort of broad contours of this, this looks a lot like, you, you know, your, your garden variety uh, currency crisis with, uh, you know, sort of Turkish flavors to it. 
<laughs> and it's certainly not just, again, Turkey and Argentina, you know, what's happened uh, in Russia in various recent crises or, or Mexico in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, uh, and, you know, many other cases, you know, Iceland in 2008, you know, we can, so the sort of list goes on, the, the basic parallels uh, of the sort of, you know, what, what the sort of steps are in the process look um, pretty similar. It does not strike me as an outlier. Well, it's, it's really it's really interesting. We'll have to see how it plays out. Uh, David, hey, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Mark. Really appreciate it. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And on this week's topics segment, we're joined by Thomas Serre of the University of California, Santa Cruz, um, and a prolific author on Algeria. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mark. So I just wanted to talk to you about the state of Algerian politics, the Iraq, where it came from and its current conditions. Um, and maybe you could start by just giving us uh, some background on what the Iraq was, where it came from and um, what we need to know about it. Um, yes, absolutely. Well, the, the Iraq was or is uh, a grassroots uh, popular mobilization that started in uh, February of 2019. And that was the outcome of a very uh, long-standing, protracted, seemingly never-ending political crisis in Algeria uh, that uh, stretched basically from the end of the 2000s to 2019. Uh, it was uh, a reaction to the decision of the ruling coalition and the associates of the president Abdelaziz Bouteflika to organize a presidential election that was supposed to lead to the re-election of Bouteflika for a fifth mandate, knowing that Bouteflika was uh, at this point uh, very sick, unable to seek to speak or uh, move, or barely able to, to speak uh, and move. And for the population, it was uh, perceived as uh, um, the, this last straw that that breaks uh, the camelback i mean it was <laughs> it was it was like an insult but one insult to many like you have to understand that in algeria over the past 20 30 years the the the, the, the political and economic crisis has led the ruling elites to adopt a very um patronizing infantilizing way to talk to their population and that this is something that is felt deeply, uh, this kind of insulting way to, to interact with your people. And that this decision to organize another election, uh, a presidential election, and to obviously uh, make a mockery of the popular will was uh, this, this moment that, that, that created the conditions for, uh, for this peaceful insurrection. So the, the, the uprising itself, Al-Hirak, how was it organized? Who were the major um, you know, organizations, individuals? How, would, how was it able to sustain itself um, over the period of time that it did? That's actually a very important question because um, the, the Herak was organized, uh, but without genuine organization. Uh, organizations, because uh, for um, historical reasons, political parties uh, are at this point um, basically irrelevant in Algeria. Even I would say the, the National Liberation Front, the historical nationalist party, which is part of the ruling coalition, is politically irrelevant. So there was not a, a, a top-down organization. It was a, an horizontal movement organized mostly via social media. Uh, uh, and pre-existing um, youth organizations, uh, 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 grassroots uh, local associations that um, had this ability to mobilize and organize without being uh, vertical, without being coercive, without giving this impression that they were political. So it had to be organized. The discourse was inherently contentious and political, but the actors had to stay uh, as far away as possible from the political field, which was one of the challenges uh, in the early days of the Herak. But since the sense of uh, humiliation, the, 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 the rejection of the ruling coalition and Bouteflika and his associate was so strong, it was not uh, an obstacle in the early days of the Herak. So this organization went well uh, uh, for the first six months. 
until it reached this kind of uh, decisive turning point when the state actually decided to react uh, and to, uh, to, 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 to um, uh, start its rep uh, repressive machine. Mm -hmm. And at this point, the, the lack of clear identified leader and uh, uh, leading political organizations was actually uh, uh, one, of the, one of the ways in which the, the Herak was able to survive the first year and a half of repression in the sense that it's a movement that is impossible to be had. Right. Now, the, the major modality of the Herak were these uh, truly massive weekly marches. Um, and so what was, the, what was the logic or the thinking behind that as the major form of mobilization? Well, th th there was a sense of retaking the public space that was uh, very obvious uh, in, the, in the early months of the Herak, retaking the public space um, um, every Friday uh, in the afternoon after the prayer, um, even if it was not religious per se, retaking the public space and expressing a sense of um, national and patriotic pride. So retaking this nationalist discourse and this nationalist, nationalist pride uh, 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 away from the state, away from the, from the uh, ruling elites. So this was only part of this kind of routine of the protest in Algeria because one part of the routine of, the, of this protest in Algeria because uh, protesters were also in the streets on Tuesdays, organized in particular by students. So students uh, and uh, these kind of local coordinations of students based in each university uh, played a key role in organizing the protest and uh, maintaining a sense of mobilization throughout the week especially with this so second day of mobilization on Tuesdays. Uh, uh, students also organized uh, workshops to discuss uh, questions of the um, future of citizenship, what would be a new constitution for Algeria, what does it mean to uh, 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 fight for democracy or human rights. So students were also instrumental, and it is also important to, to emphasize the fact that the student movement in Algeria has been uh, active for the past 10 years. There was a huge mobilization in 2011, and these local coordinations have existed for quite a while. So there is uh, this kind of repertoire of contention in Algeria that pre-existed the Herak that SOMO coalesced in 2019 to, to, to provide a structure for the movement. But it came from social movements, not from the political sphere, which is why you have uh, a very uh, effective grassroots uh, organization, but no uh, vertical leadership and a, a, a genuine difficulty to come up with representatives to uh, uh, express some uh, mm -hmm. uh, guiding principles and ideas. So in response, Bouteflika actually does um, step down or he's removed, and yet nothing much really seems to change. So what possibility is there for political change in Algeria now from the perspective of, of the Herat? I guess that the question of uh, change is always tricky because if we expect um, a radical uh, change, um, some kind of, of French Revolution, we have to accept the fact that it takes a very long time. Uh, and that's, we are looking at a movement that happened three years ago. So there is a, a sense of impatience in the way in which we look at the Herak and its outcome, which, which is, uh, I think, uh, detrimental to our analysis. Uh, what, is, what, what has happened for sure is that the, the extensive claims, which were uh, this idea that the entire system has to go, if you really want to do this over a period of time that is quite short, while remaining peaceful, it seems very difficult because what is the system in Algeria? It's well, the presidency, Abdelaziz Bouteflika, his associates, uh, businessmen, ministers, but these people are gone. They were purged anyway. And then there is the actual uh, 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 core of the ruling coalition, which is the army mm -hmm. and uh, the high level technocracy. And if you really want to purge the army and the high-level technocracy, which is often evacuated from, the, uh, from, from this kind of observations, but that is central, if you want to purge these two sectors, you need to purge the state in a way. And this takes a lot of time. It is often violent. And this is not something that the Algerian population, the protesters want. They don't want violence. So there is kind of a tension here. But concretely, what has happened? The... Those who were the associates of the president, most of them, or 
I mean, Abdelaziz Bouteflika are in jail. That's a fact. The popular legitimacy, the, the, the electoral legitimacy of the ruling coalition is inexistent for a fact. And that's obvious for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so in order to survive, what is left of the ruling coalition is trying to implement reforms. And they have done it in the past. They have failed. They are trying again. Does it mean that nothing has changed? No. I mean, a subsequent uh, 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 fraction of the ruling coalition is in jail. Uh, the, the, the types of uh, corrupt behaviors that we saw under Bouteflika, as far as I can tell, they do not seem to be happening right now. Mm. What is happening right now is an army that is trying to go back to its uh, uh, routine and not being the face of political decisions. And the president, uh, Abdelmajid Tebboune, is trying to become president to embody uh, political authority. And in order to do so, is uh, basing his, his action on two pillars. One, fighting corruption, which in a way is legitimate, I guess. And two, a, a, a process of uh, economic liberalization, which is going to be much more problematic uh, in the Algerian context. So between COVID repression and these reforms that are these changes that have happened at the top, um, what space is left for the Hirak to mobilize effectively? It is, it is true that um, with COVID, the ability of protesters to occupy the public space, with COVID and repression, the ability of protesters to occupy the public space is uh, as, as diminished considerably, especially in the North. Uh, then, traditionally in Algeria, the state is not able or willing to control the entire country. We're speaking about the largest country in, 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 in Africa. Uh, and uh, spaces for uh, public protest existed in the past and still exist. So, for example, in the summer, uh, 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 um, prote protests erupted in, in the south, uh, uh, near Wargla, in El Wed. And, and this is historically a, a region where, where uh, social movements are, are very, uh, very active. In Kabylia, uh, in the east, protests are also happening. But in Algiers, in Wahran, in the big cities of the north, it's much more difficult because the state has decided to crack down systematically on protesters. And this is the kind of repression that is um, so difficult to predict Mm -hmm. that it is actually difficult to 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 uh, to, um, uh, to 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 find a way between the 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 the, the, the various uh, um, the various traps set by by the, by the police and and, and ju uh, judicial apparatuses but and that's something important there is one space that is still available for protest it's um, the internet the internet is monitored. You can still be arrested for what you say on Facebook. But again, the state is not arresting everybody. The state is just picking up one person every two weeks. And overall, if you look at the, the, those who are in jail right now, at the, at the number of political prisoners in Algeria uh, right now, you have 280 uh, political prisoners, which is way too much, way too many. But nonetheless, we are far from the kind of massive repression that you could see, you can see in uh, Egypt or even in Sudan. That's an interesting point. So I guess one last question then is what uh, what are the things that you think that most observers uh, from the outside of the Hirak are, are missing or getting wrong? What do you wish that people understood about them that they don't? I think that it's it's a it's a tricky question because I need to focus on one thing, <laughs> uh, but but I think that one of the one of the key uh, the key aspects that I often uh, emphasize is that the Algerian state is quite competent in what it does. Uh, its technocracy is trained in elite schools, and uh, what they do is very similar to what you can observe in other parts of the world. And when you look at the repression implemented right now in Algeria, it doesn't look like what is happening in Egypt. It looks what, like what is happening in France. And, and that's something that, that is very important to understand that this is like, even if Algeria is part of the Arab world, uh, 
broadly speaking, I don't know what it means exactly, but part of this region, even in, at so many levels, uh, uh, citizens do not have the rights uh, uh, that citizens can have in, in Europe uh, to express their opinion. Nonetheless, the way in which the state operates is not that different from what we see in other parts of the world, including in Europe, including in France. And, and it, I think that the, what we see in Algeria is clearly a reminder that it becomes increasingly difficult to challenge a state even when this state is not murderous, and even when the protesters are very peaceful and responsible. And this applies to what we see in Algeria, to what we see in Hong Kong, to what we see in France. And that's, that's a lesson that is, that is much, uh, that is meaningful beyond the, 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 the Middle East. That's really interesting. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure.